developing a game plan to defend America's digital democracy and the evolution of breaches in the healthcare field. These stories and more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. It's not just the Russians. There are others who have hacked into campaigns and leading political figures. It just made me think that we need to try to do something about that to protect the democracy. That's Eric Rosenbach addressing the challenges to secure the American electoral system. During the final five and a half years of the Obama administration, Rosenbach served as the top cyber policymaker at the U.S. Department of Defense, first as Deputy Assistant Secretary, then Assistant Secretary, and finally Chief of Staff to then-Defense Secretary Ash Carter. In May, Rosenbach became co-director of the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, rejoining Carter, who heads the think tank. Rosenbach also serves as project director of the new bipartisan initiative at the Belfer Center called Defending Digital Democracy. Help leading the initiative are the former campaign managers for Hillary Clinton and Mitt Romney, Democrat Robbie Mook, and Republican Matt Rhodes. I recently spoke with Rosenbach about the Defending Digital Democracy initiative and what follows are excerpts from that conversation. As DOD's top cyber policymaker, Rosenbach said, I saw a lot of pretty scary things related to the cyber threat. One of those was the intent of a lot of bad guys and nation state actors to try to influence some of the electoral and democratic processes in the United States. As you heard, Rosenbach says it's not just the Russians who threaten the U.S. electoral system. Is Russia the biggest threat? I can't comment in particular on some of the intel just because of the past work that I was doing. But I think the most important thing is to look forward about what could happen if we don't build the defensive abilities of campaigns, electoral commissions, and the states to defend against. Down the road, there could be any number of actors who have the idea that that they want to try to mess up our democratic processes. That could be some type of cyber terrorist who has a political agenda. Maybe even an American might want to do that. It could be some state actors, but it could also be ISIS or someone. We're kind of agnostic about exactly who it is that does it. We're trying to focus on the idea of building cyber defenses so that they'll be able to mitigate the risk from whoever the threat is. Before we get to what the Defending Digital Democracy Initiative hopes to achieve, Rosenblatt reflects on the current state of security in the U.S. electoral system. There's definitely room for improvement. What makes it complicated for campaigns and state electoral folks is that they may not have a standing IT staff that is there full-time until campaigns start to get more serious. And campaigns may not even stand up until several months before things get serious. That's what's a little more challenging. And that's one of the reasons why we think you know that's a good place to focus our project. The Defending Digital Democracy will develop a series of steps focused on cybersecurity best practices and existing and emerging technologies that can be adopted by political campaigns and local, state, and federal election officials to protect the electoral process. Rosenbach outlined three areas the initiative is concentrating on. The first is on campaigns, and those could be national, state, or local, you know, because we think we'll come up with either a suite of technology or processes and management best practices that will help us. Some is investigating whether with the states there are things we can do to help them, state and local governments. And then there's a role in which we try to help even federal government agencies like DHS and some of the others who are working on this 
who have it as part of their core mission and they realize that this is important. But sometimes having an outside actor that doesn't have a specific agenda other than to help can facilitate that a little bit. And the core idea there is we'd really like to try to improve the flow of information and threat information in particular from some parts of the federal government to state and local governments or to campaigns. You'll hear more of my interview with Rosenbach in the next edition of the ISMG Security Report. In part two of the interview, Rosenbach discusses the types of technologies the initiative will evaluate that campaigns and election officials might adopt to secure the electoral process. Technologies such as blockchain. It's probably not completely mature yet, especially in this space of democratic processes. But if you can operationalize the idea of that immutable ledger, there's something that would go with that that I think is potentially very powerful. When we return after this message, you'll hear a report on the evolution of the types of breaches plaguing the healthcare industry. Hacks have been a big contributor in recent years versus stolen, unencrypted devices and storage media. That was the most common cause of large breaches just a few years ago. This is the ISMG Security Report. ISMG's Fraud and Breach Prevention Summit Toronto, taking place on September 12th and 13th at the Delta Hotel, will feature Art Coviello, former CEO RSA Security, as the keynote speaker. This plus other subject matter experts from Visa, CA Technologies, Carnegie Mellon, and more will discuss key information security topics. Register today at events.ismg.io. Welcome back. The U.S. government-run healthcare breach reporting site, unofficially known as the Wall of Shame, has reached a milestone. But the tale behind those numbers reflect how breaches have changed since 2009. That's the year the Department of Health and Human Services began tallying significant breaches. Marianne Kolbasak-McGee is executive editor of Healthcare Info Security, and she joins me to discuss the backstory to the Wall of Shame numbers. Hi, Marianne. Hey, Eric. I want to discuss how these Wall of Shame numbers reflect changes in the breach landscape. First, though, what was the milestone? The federal website indicates that the tally of major breaches over the last few weeks hit and then surpassed the 2000 breach milestone. What's interesting is that it took five years from September 2009, when HHS began tallying the breaches, to about April 2014 for the wall of shame to reach the 1,000 breach milestone. But more than 1,000 additional new breaches have been added to the HHS wall of shame in the last three years. Also, the number of people impacted by large health data breaches has soared over the last three years. The first 1,000 breaches that were reported reported over the five-year period between September 2009 and May 2014 impacted about 31.5 million people. As of August 9th of this year, the additional 1,000 breaches that have been added to the list over the last three years has pushed that total to 175 million individuals. That's an enormous jump. Wasn't a good part of this big jump in breaches attributed to one specific cyber attack? The biggest breach on that list that has been added within the last three years was reported in 2015 by Anthem. That breach alone affected almost 79 million people. But in addition to that large breach, there have been several other breaches involving hackers that just those breaches alone pushed the tally up a few million people for each of those. What do these numbers tell us about the type of breaches occurring today versus those dating back to the inauguration of the breach reporting site in 2009? Well, 
Well, as I mentioned, hacks have been a big contributor in recent years versus stolen, unencrypted devices and storage media. That was the most common cause of large breaches just a few years ago. Also, healthcare entities are becoming a more popular target of hackers because of this valuable information that these entities hold that the criminals want. Also, there has been more breaches overall that have been caused by phishing attacks. Can one extrapolate from these numbers new security practices being instituted by healthcare organizations? More organizations are getting better about encrypting mobile devices, and organizations are also getting better in their reporting practices to the Department in Health and Human Services using a, quote, four-factor assessment method that HHS recommends for determining whether a security incident is a reportable breach involving protected health information. Only the big breaches are reported to the wall of shame, but there are many, many other smaller ones that can cause damage as well. Yes, it's important to keep in mind that the wall of shame only lists health data breaches involving 500 or more individuals. There's likely many, many more smaller breaches that add up. And indeed, those breaches, too, have to be reported annually to HHS. And when aggregated, they can result also in significant losses of valuable information. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Dissing a competitor can come back to bite you. That's a lesson learned by the head of security services provider, Direct Defense. ISMG Security and Technology Editor, Jeremy Kirk, explains. In the ultra-competitive information security market, vendors are known to sprinkle hyperbole amongst their claims and sometimes sling a little mud. But the strategy has backfired for Denver-based Direct Defense, which mistakenly cast endpoint protection vendor Carbon Black as a contributor to what it describes as a data exfiltration botnet. The result has been a widespread backlash against Direct Defense. The company says it found terabytes of data containing sensitive information that it traced back to one of Carbon Black's endpoint protection products. The data was uploaded to VirusTotal, which is a malware depository, as part of cloud-based scans to detect malware. The blog post raises a valid issue about the security issues around cloud-based scanning of potential malware, but has been quickly picked apart by security experts for its accuracy and tone. It has also raised questions over Direct Defense's approach. The company went public before notifying Carbon Black, even though the research had gone on for months. Such notifications are customary to allow organizations time to fix problems. In a phone interview, Direct Defense CEO Jim Broom admits to me the blog post was a stretch. He says Direct Defense has been trying to raise attention around data leaks related to the sharing of potentially malicious files, but it didn't get much attention. He tells me that he decided to go with a more sensational title for the blog post. It certainly did generate attention, and not much of it good. Carbon Black quickly rebuffed the charges. The company's product, which is called CB Response, will upload files to external malware repositories such as VirusTotal to see if a file is malicious. But that sharing is only done with the customer's consent. The sharing also is turned off by default in the product and customers have to turn it on. 
The data that Direct Defense found would appear to be sensitive and included Java archives that contained AWS credentials, Slack API keys, Atlassian single sign-on credentials, and more. The data belonged to a financial services company, a large streaming media company, and a social media company. The data has now been removed from the internet, but it appears that the Direct Defense approach to the situation won't be forgotten soon. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.